creates a healthy, growing church community? Before any of you yell out Jesus or the gospel, which would be good, correct answers, let me just be a bit more specific with what I mean by this question. Beyond the foundations of the Bible and the doctrines that are essential to salvation, is there like a ground floor a church can build on that foundation that is better than others? And if so, what is it? I assembled some possible answers for us this morning from a few reputable evangelical sources. I'll list a few of them. By far the most common piece of advice you'd probably hear to that kind of a question in in our circles is to uh, craft a mission or a vision statement around what is unique to your church. In fact, almost every article I consulted had that in the top three. The rationale, people are drawn to and get excited about a clear vision. Number two, invest early in children's and youth programs. The ethos here being, if you build it, they will come. Families are the anchor to growth in every demographic. So goes the argument. Some highlight an accessible Bible study methodology that's practiced by a number of people in the church. Some creators of these particular methods of studying the Bible, they say they produce mature leaders in mere months. So perhaps it's one of those. Most recommend some kind of combination, things along those lines. So is, this, is there an answer to this or is it a mere chasing after the wind? to ask that kind of question. Is there something beyond a commitment to the Bible and the primary doctrines of Christianity that makes churches grow both outward toward the lost and upward in godliness? Titus chapter two may be instructive for us this morning. I'll invite you to turn there now as I read our text today. Just a reminder, this is the Apostle Paul writing to his co-laborer Titus on the Greek island of Crete. Titus 2, verse 1. You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed, because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These, then, are the things you should teach. 
encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, we saw last week that the whole book of Titus can essentially be summarized by that sentence that's right at the top of your handout this morning. Genuine good works emerge only from a deepening grasp of sound gospel doctrine. If good works are not present, neither is the gospel. Paul is very concerned that there be clear evidence of gospel transformation in the young churches on the Greek island of Crete. His first call to action in chapter 1 was to command his envoy Titus to ensure godly pastors are recognized and installed in every church. These men are to be assessed primarily, we found out on two fronts, their character and their ability to teach and defend sound doctrine. Elders, essentially, they help preserve this sound doctrine generation to generation and exemplify the character qualities that every Christian is called to exhibit. But here in chapter 2, it becomes very clear that Titus's mandate extends well beyond the leaders in the church in Crete. He is to carry apostolic teaching to every church member. Look at that big picture of chapter 2, chapter 2 only in your bulletins. Sound gospel teaching is what transforms believers of every age, gender, and social class, creating a compelling gospel witness. The apostle is not just concerned about elders. His call to godliness is for every Christian in Crete, for every church member from the poorest female slave to the wealthiest male land baron. All of them have some role to play if the light of the gospel is to pierce through the thick fog of sin that is hanging over this notorious island. You can see in your bulletins, I've divided chapter 2 into three points this morning. We'll see this throughout the morning. The results, the necessity, and the substance of sound gospel teaching. First, we see the necessity of gospel teaching. The gospel is something that must be taught. That's what I mean by this. It must be taught. That is spoken, transmitted verbally. It cannot be left unsaid. The emphasis emerges from the imperatives of this chapter. It's quite clear. They bookend the passage. We see actually six commands from Paul to Titus in this whole chapter. And five of them are in verses 1 and 15. Verse 1. Titus is to teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Some translations actually have preach or speak there. The bottom line is the sense of that word is verbal communication. And then Paul uses the same again, the same word again in verse 15. He essentially sandwiches the entire interim section between these two verbs. Titus is to speak to the Cretans what Paul articulates to him in verses 2 through 14. More than that, in verse 15, we hear he's called to strongly encourage these teachings. It just says encourage in your NIV or ESV says exhort. That's the sense of the word, strongly encourage. And he is to rebuke with all authority those who contradict what he's going to tell them. As we saw last week, Titus, again, he's an apostolic delegate. He carries authoritative teaching from an apostle of Jesus Christ that is not up for debate. This authority is akin to the authority we have now in the Bible. No person carries this now in our churches. So Titus, as a result of this, he must not let people despise him. 
In other words, he must not give up when dismissed or allow his authority from Paul to be undermined or questioned. He must relentlessly teach. And all of this to say is Paul is just extremely clear in this chapter. He's extremely clear. The gospel first and foremost must be taught. Spoken verbally, heralded. Some of you may have heard the famous quote. It's attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, and really through no fault of his own, it's been distorted. He said, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. And this has far too often been taken in, in our day and age to essentially mean modeling the results of the gospel is somehow more effective than speaking it. More important. That might make things at the water cooler a little easier at work, uh, but it is an unbiblical approach to evangelism and Christian teaching. It is true. Our lives must accord with the gospel. And when done well, this is a compelling witness and example. In fact, as we have seen and we will see in this book, that is really the overriding concern of Paul in the book of Titus. But Paul never places Christian living in the place of or at the expense of teaching. Romans 10, 14, how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? Brothers and sisters, the gospel is a message. It is good news that must be communicated. To model it only is, I'll use something that's very near to what I do, is akin to gathering people around a radio. You get excited about it, you draw them into that radio, but then you leave it turned off. Brothers and sisters, how long do you wait before you articulate the gospel with coworkers and neighbors? There is certainly a place to build a rapport. I'm not totally ruling that out, earning a chance for a better hearing. We hear of that in the New Testament. But I think it is fair to say that too often our delays betray a fear of man rather than a godly discernment. I think that's fair to say. But this also goes beyond evangelism. We're not just thinking evangelism here. Members of New City, don't be ashamed to explicitly remind one another about the gospel. This is discipling at its finest. It, you shouldn't be offended. With, of course I know what the gospel is. If someone tells you the gospel, thank you. Thank you for reminding me again of what I believe. We are all prone to forget certain aspects of the gospel when the world's concerns cloud our eyes in different ways. That's a concern for all of us. Parents... We need to articulate the gospel to our kids over and over again. Don't assume they'll just pick it up or that they remember it from when you once told them when they were four. Talk about it when you sit at home and when you walk along the sidewalk and when you put them to bed and around the breakfast table. And don't wait until they are old enough to grasp every implication of what you're saying. The simple truth can save. Here's a song we've been singing recently in our family to this end. It was instrumental for me. I learned it from one of my Sunday school teachers growing up. Bear with me. It goes like this. Good news, good news. Christ died for me. Good news, good news. If I believe. Good news, good news. He rose again for me. That's wonderful. Extra good news. It's a good ditty. They really like the extra part. Friends, we must recognize the necessity of sound gospel teaching as the agent of transformation in our churches. Teaching. 
The gospel must be taught, not only and not just its results modeled. But, yes, those results matter greatly, as we will see for most of this passage. The implications of the gospel, the actions that emerge from it, are the critical evidence that the proper gospel has been taught and believed. Paul has written this letter to Titus essentially for that purpose. It goes right back to that big picture again. Paul has written this letter for Titus to say just that. He wants the Christians in Crete to be living out the truth accurately. And so we come to our second point this morning, the results of sound gospel teaching. In verses 2 to 10, Paul gives Titus instructions regarding four different groups, maybe six, depends how you divide it, but four little sections. He says older men in verse 2, older and younger women together in verses 3 to 5, younger men in verses 6 to 8, Uh, to whom Titus is to be a particular model of godly living, and finally slaves in verses 9 and 10. Again, Paul is showing his concern for every age, gender, and social class in the church. Each of them has been redeemed by Christ. Each individual has the Spirit in them. Each has work to do in obedience to their Savior. And while the apostle places different emphases for each group, there are several uniting themes here. What we have really are a bunch of non-exhaustive lists of character qualifications tailored for each demographic, much like we saw with elders in chapter 1. Each of these chunks could be sermons unto themselves. In fact, we've seen that already at New City. John has preached a couple of sermons on just Titus 2, 3 to 5, going into the weeds about women. So if you have more questions about that than what I'll say this morning, I direct you there. It's on our website. But today we're going to approach this mainly from a big picture perspective. We're going to fly over this section first and see a uniting characteristic. And then we're going to drop in briefly on each unit and just look at a couple of applications and clarifications. And then, of course, we'll sum it all up one more time by flying over the whole thing and seeing the corporate impact of these good works that are appropriate to sound doctrine. So first we see a uniting characteristic. I think this is relatively plain in the text. It's self-control. That's the uniting characteristic. Recall that Paul has already required self-control of elders back in chapter 1. Now Titus is to teach the older men and the younger men to be self-controlled, verses 2 and 6. And he's to train the older women to urge the younger women to be self-controlled in verse 5. While Paul doesn't list it explicitly as a quality for older women or for slaves, Uh, The concept is certainly there for both when you look at their lists. Uh, Older women are to be self-controlled over their tongues and their consumption of alcohol. Christian slaves are to control any urge they might have to rebel and to talk ill against their masters. And then finally, in verses 11 and 12, we see this driven home. Uh, This is really the summary of 2 to 10 we see in verse 11 and 12. Self-control is right at the heart of it. Again, look at verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Self-control stands in the gap between ungodliness and worldly passions and being upright and godly. That's where Paul places it. So why this focus? Well, one reason is, of course, the immediate cultural context uh, going on in Crete. Uh, We saw this last week. The Cretans had a reputation for lacking control, really in all facets 
of life. They are known as liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. That's chapter 1, verse 12. The other reason is Jesus. Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. Controlling our lusting after the things of this world is the mark of mature Christianity. How are we able to do this? Well, the Apostle Paul also wrote Galatians, and he said in Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That's another way to say self-control, essentially. The fruit of the Spirit in Galatians is the good works in Titus. They are more or less one-to-one, we see in this passage. It's the same concept. They are the results of conversion, of the Spirit's sanctifying work, not of mere willpower. 1 Corinthians 10.13, For the Spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. The Cretan Christians, from the greatest to the least, are able to withstand temptation, exercising self-control by the power of the Holy Spirit. They are indeed Christians. They and we have the ability to leave the party, to avert our eyes, to close the laptop, and positively to respond gently. Not because of our best efforts, but because of the Spirit in us, by God's grace. We're going to talk more about this when we get back to verse 12, towards the end of our sermon today. But for now, just note that self-control is the uniting virtue that Paul wants Titus to teach and to model in Crete. Let's go back and we'll stop in on each group. Verse 2, Titus's commission to the older men. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. I think there's a question that probably arises out of the gate here for us coming to this text 2,000 years later. And it's, what does Paul mean when he refers to older, younger? A commentator's debate how to determine that, but most experts argue the division is around 40 years old. So life expectancy was shorter then, keep that in mind. So this is not just the elderly in view, when he's talking about older men, it's middle-aged and elderly men, likely, and women for that matter. Now that said, mere chronological advancement is not what equips these older, wen- older men or older women to have these characteristics. It's not just a natural thing that emerges from getting older. That is against the gospel. New City, just because a Christian is older doesn't mean they're holier or wiser or more spiritually mature or they've lived a life that's been indelibly stamped by the claims of the gospel. That's not always true. Paul knows that. As we'll see in a couple of minutes, the basis for everything Paul is saying here actually lands in the gospel, not age. Growth in sound gospel doctrine is what produces these behaviors. But the ca- that caveat aside, younger women, younger men, we should approach older saints with reverence and respect. Why is that? Because the normal pattern is that believers who've been walking with the Lord for longer will have more wisdom to impart. Mostly from the University of Hard Knocks, for better or for worse. 
Proverbs 16.31 states this general principle, gray hair is a crown of splendor. It is attained in the way of righteousness. There is a tendency, sadly, for young people to dismiss or to uncharitably critique the older generation and for the older to give up on the younger or to feel as though they're unwanted in their lives. May it never be so in Christ's church. Both groups lose badly as a result. We need relationships that transcend birth dates. We all need the whole body of Christ speaking into our lives the truth of the gospel. Now this list of qualities to be exhibited by the older men in particular, they mostly recall the elder qualifications in chapter 1, if you were to summarize them. That shouldn't surprise us. This is the likely demographic from which elders will emerge in the church. Uh, The one unique thing about this list is that final phrase, sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Recall any other biblical images from Paul's writings. It should. He uses it a bunch of times, actually, in several of his letters, most famously, of course, in 1 Corinthians 13, everyone's favorite out-of-context wedding passage, 1 Corinthians 13, 13. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Paul inverts the order of this trio here in this passage, and in doing so, I think he places emphasis on that new final word. We have hope's replacement, but it's very close to the idea represented by hope, and that is steadfastness, endurance, patience. It's a fruit of the Spirit most often wrought only through years of walking through peaks and valleys with the Lord. The takeaway for us is this. Older brothers, seek to be models of patience. Exude steadfast hope in the Lord your years of faithfulness has produced. Young men, young women, let's look to them. Younger folks often overestimate. We often overestimate what we can do in a short time, but we underestimate what we can do in a decade. Our older brothers might be able to help correct our short-sightedness in that area. Let's turn now to the women in verse 3. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. One thing stands out for sure in verse 4. While Titus is to directly teach all of the other groups, Paul has a different recommendation for younger women. Commentator Ryan Yarbrough comments here, With great pastoral wisdom intact, Paul instructs Titus to delegate the spiritual formation and daily lives of younger women to the believers best situated to encourage them, older women. Now that doesn't mean it's a total delegation. He doesn't expect, he does expect the older men, of course, to do the same as well with the younger men. doesn't say so explicitly in this text, but there's many texts we could turn to for that same principle. But he clearly does see wisdom in Titus urging older women to take the lead in training younger sisters. Recall Paul's words here in Ephesians 4.12. Pastors are to equip not just men, 
God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. That verse and this passage teaches us that women, no less than men, are to equip other parts of the body of Christ. Let me just state this super plainly. Ladies, pastors need you to be speaking into the lives of other women. You have insight and experience we do not have. Another godly mother speaking into the life of a struggling first-time mom will be able to make an impact in a way that a male pastor likely will not. Now, don't hear me saying that to the nth degree, to exclusion of other things. I'm not saying younger women should tune out their pastors or that pastors shouldn't speak uh, to younger women. They should uh, clear birth around the younger women in the church. That's not what I'm saying. I just firmly believe elders should be men. And just as much as I firmly believe that, we need women capable of teaching the word in our churches. That is just what the text tells us here. They may be teaching in formal settings that may look like Bible studies, Sunday schools, but they must be teaching in the form of discipling. We can use that kind of a word. They must be doing this if the church is to be maximally healthy. Life on life teaching. Women helping other women follow Jesus by teaching and applying the Bible. Not just by you know, talking on the surface, but actually teaching and applying the word of God. Women should be coming alongside each other at New City, going to God's word on questions like, what does submission to the spiritual leadership of a husband look like? What does that look like when it's not going well? How do mothers best love their children? What does it mean for a woman to be pure and kind and self-controlled? Ladies, these three verses alone could guide an entire ISF, probably several. Two more quick notes just on the women here. Number one, busy at home. I think that phrase stands out to us here in our culture, doesn't it? Busy at home. That probably isn't the most helpful translation for us right now. It's pretty good translation, but just it, there's baggage that's been brought in in our day and age. Busy has a fairly negative connotation as well. I think more along the lines of Proverbs 31 when you hear and read this phrase. She watches over the affairs of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. The Greco-Roman world was not Taliban Afghanistan. That's not the point of this passage. Women moved about freely in public, and they conducted business as well. Busy at home should not make us recall images of 1950s housewives so much as it should call us to remember that Paul's requirement for elders was to manage their own households and how the false teachers were disrupting those households with their meaningless talk. That was back in chapter one. Godly husbands and godly wives are to partner together in a two-pronged defense against these false teachers in the home. Paul is also not barring, nor is he belittling, the idea of singleness with these, of these qualifications he lists. Uh, just as he is not putting uh, Cretan women under marital house arrest, see 1 Corinthians 7 if you want Paul's very high thoughts on singleness. He is simply speaking into the context that women normally occupy. Certainly in this culture and largely cross-culturally as well. Marriage and parenting are creation norms. Our culture gets all tied up in knots when we say things like this, but it is a fact. A good one. God's good design. Also note these lists are not exhaustive, but they are representative. So Paul does not 
intend to address all possible life situations for women. Okay, young men, we're up next. Verse 6. Similarly encourage the young men to be self-controlled. Period. Done. In everything, Titus, Paul says, set them an example by doing what is good. Is that a low bar? Some of you may know the story of Lester Patrick. Some of you really extreme sports fans out there. Not many of you. Uh, He was a Hall of Fame NHL coach. Let me tell you a bit about him. In the 1928 Stanley Cup Finals, Patrick's team, the New York Rangers, lost its goaltender to an eye injury in the middle of game one. And back then, teams didn't have backups. Faced with having to play with an empty net and six skaters, Patrick, 44 years old, inserted himself into the game, despite never having played goalie before. And he backstopped, at least at a professional level, he backstopped his team to a victory, and his team would later win the Stanley Cup a few games later. He was a player coach, really the last of the player coaches in, the, in hockey anyway, and this has really died in all sports. But a player coach is a good picture of what Titus is commissioned to be to the young men in Crete. He is to be a direct example to them because he is in the game with them. But he's also to instruct. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned. A lot has been said about the young men only being told to be self-controlled in this passage. I'm not sure all of it's helpful. We have to keep in mind, Titus is their example of godly living in every way. Titus himself. It seems safe to assume Titus was likely an elder qualified man for Paul to be using him as an apostolic delegate. So the call for us young men is actually quite a high bar. It's not a low one. That may come off the text at first blush, but the young men are actually being called to the standards that we saw last week for elders in Titus 1, 5 to 9. So brothers, like I said last week, let's start there. That is our one-stop shop for pursuing mature biblical manhood. Verse 9, teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show they can be fully trusted, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. Why is Paul talking about slaves? Is he condoning slavery here? Not the point. We must remember that slaves accounted for a third of the Roman Empire's population. In the first century, churches likely simply reflected this. Paul is merely speaking to a situation that a lot of Cretan Christians found themselves in. Slaves receive this general call that they are to subject themselves to their masters in all things. Paul's always very concerned that proper authority structures are respected. We're actually going to see more about this next week in chapter 3. But then he follows that up general, the general word he has for them with four principles. They deal with attitude and integrity in particular. These, of course, still have direct relevance to thousands of believers in this world who live in slavery today. But is there any relevance to any of us who are not enslaved? Is it just something we gloss over in this culture? I don't think so. One commentator writes, it is obvious the problems addressed are not unique to slaves, but are rather common to the situation of workers in general. Brothers and sisters, this is a call to submission and to integrity in our workplaces. 
And just a brief word on the prohibition of stealing along this line. While Paul is certainly ruling out common thievery, of course, in verse 10, he may also be thinking spiritually here. There's some, you look at the Greek text, there's some merit for this. In God's sight, slaves owe their masters a godly witness. They owe them that as Christians, not one that detracts from the gospel they believe. And this principle extends to us as our, in our workplaces today. Christian, don't rob your colleagues and your bosses of a pleasing attitude and a faithful demeanor that makes the teaching about God our Savior attractive. You owe that to them as unto your true master, the Lord. And it's in this phrase at the end of Paul's instructions to verse 10 that really starts to draw this whole section of text together. We've arrived really at the overall corporate impact, a compelling community. Recall again our big picture. Sound gospel teaching is what transforms believers of every age, gender, and social class, creating a compelling gospel witness. And this emerges for us three times in verses 2 to 10. The women should be godly so that no one will malign the word of God. Titus should model godliness to the young men, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. And the transformed lives of the godly slaves will serve to make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. In short, these genuine good works that emerge from a deepening grasp of sound gospel doctrine create a compelling community. Unbelievers should either be drawn to this community or maybe a little weirded out by it, depending on the Spirit's work in their lives. D.C. Pastor Jamie Dunlop, who wrote a book by that title, puts it this way. Our churches should consist of many relationships that exist only because of the gospel. Non-Christians should struggle to explain the love that is evident within the membership of New City Baptist Church. Unfortunately, I think our tendency and all churches' tendency is to sometimes actively work against the formation of this community by trying to manufacture this kind of witness by using the world's techniques and by actually lumping parts of the congregation together that work well together and, and sort of isolating them like that. A couple of those suggestions appeared in my introduction. But sadly, when you try to build with man-made tools, over time, those natural man-made divisions we all necessarily sort of lean towards, they become set in concrete in church life. We cannot manufacture the gospel community envisioned in verses 2 through 10 of this text. No program is a solution. We're going to talk more about this in our conclusion today. But first we come to our final point. The substance of sound gospel teaching. Paul has just finished saying that the godly behavior of Christian slaves should make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. Verses 11 to 14 are the teaching about God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. That is a Mount Everest text in the New Testament. 
There are few clear articulations of the gospel in all of the Bible. But first, I just want you to notice how the logic of this whole chapter comes to rest here in these, particularly verses 11 and 12, but that whole section. Back in verse 1, Paul said, Titus, teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Verses 2 to 10, that was what, what, what is appropriate to sound doctrine for each group, essentially the good works that should emerge from sound doctrine. But the question was still remaining there, what is this sound doctrine? And to this point, Paul hasn't really gone into it. He's referred to the truth back in Titus 1, verse 1. Again, he's speaking to Titus here. He knows Titus knows the gospel. At this point, he hasn't fleshed it out, though. But then he does, gloriously, at the end here of chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared, offering salvation to all people. And that's the grace of God in salvation, teaching us to say no to ungodliness and yes to upright living. It teaches us self-control. It teaches us to live in a verses 2 to 10 kind of way in the present age. So the logic really comes, becomes very clear here. The results emerge from the teaching of the substance. The good works of verses 2 to 10 come from verses 1 to 15 teaching of the verse 11 to 14 gospel. So it all comes together. Now we could spend weeks alone in 11 to 14, but for today I'm just going to speak of the substance of the gospel in three parts, essentially in three tenses, if you will. I think they emerge clearly from these verses. First, the past tense. And let me just begin by speaking directly for this section to anyone visiting with us today who is not a believer in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friend, I urge you to listen closely for the next five minutes or so. How you respond to these verses has eternal bearing on your soul. And if you're a member of this church, if you're a Christian joining us today, remind yourself upon which you rely. Look at verse 11. The grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. Then the end of verse 13, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness. Friends, the grace of God has appeared and is extended as an offer of salvation to all people. And it is the incarnation, the life, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the son of God. John 1.14 is instructive here. The word, and when John uses the word, he's speaking of Jesus, that title. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the saving grace of God that has appeared in perfect fulfillment of many Old Testament prophecies, Psalm 130, Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself, that is the Lord himself, will redeem Israel from their sins. That was written 700 years before Christ. No mere man could have purchased redemption from man's slavery to sin, but God the Son Jesus Christ, as fully God and as fully man, could do so to the uttermost. He did so by dying a death he did not deserve, for in him was no sin. And so therefore death has no claim on him. His death can stand in the place of yours and of mine. You see, sin has rightly placed us under a sentence of eternity apart from God, eternity in hell, 
But God, in his abounding mercy, his abounding love toward rebels, in an act of grace, of unmerited favor, holds out a remedy to every person made in his image. It is Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness. Friends, this is the grace that is held out to you today. Salvation has been accomplished in Christ. No work to be done on your part. Extended to you, though you do not deserve it. Grace unmeasured, vast and free, as we just sang. All you must do is lay claim to it by faith. A faith that will emerge from the work of the Spirit in your life. Ephesians 2 verse 8, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. But that's only the glorious part of the whole. That's not the whole substance of the gospel. While Christians can say they have been saved in the past tense, referring to that day we first savingly believed what I just told you, we can also say we are being saved now in the present tense. Look at verse 11 again. The grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. Jesus died and was raised for sinners. This saving grace of God teaches us who have been saved to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives at the end of the days. No, now, in the present age. Brothers and sisters, the grace of God in the cross of Christ teaches us to live godly lives now. This is our proper motive. We were bought out of slavery to sin at an incalculable price. Therefore, we should live like it. That's the logic Paul puts in place here. We owe nothing to ourselves and all to Christ. Do our lives reflect that? Do our priorities look like dying to self or like living for self with a dash of generosity and humility? Brothers and sisters, Titus 2, 2 to 10 was not about pulling up our moral bootstraps as men, as women, and as Christian slaves, Christian workers. It is a standard that should move all of us to stare deeply into the grace of the gospel and ask, is my life accurately reflecting God's grace shown to me? And if not, why? Have I truly grasped the cross? My sin? Have I realized that apart from Christ, I am utterly, morally bankrupt before God, without excuse, eternally condemned? But for his grace extended to me, I am nothing. Does my life in any way reflect that I believe that to be true? It came up twice earlier, but I'll dive into it at length now. A good measuring stick for our hearts in this area is our posture toward discipling. And by discipling, I just mean our commitment to intentionally and sacrificially help other Christians follow Jesus. We should all ask ourselves, have we realized that for us to be saying, I follow Jesus, included in that declaration is the assumption that we must be helping other people follow Jesus, other Christians. It's not optional. Not if we have time, but as a necessary outflow of a ransomed life. Let me state this slightly differently. And this is, I will admit, a Mark Deverism. If I claim I'm following Jesus, but I'm not really helping other people follow Jesus, shouldn't I ask myself, what do I mean by claiming that I follow Jesus? 
It means, I mean something slightly different than how the Bible puts it. And that's really at the core of Paul's message to Titus. The effects of a group of genuine believers adopting that kind of mindset are enormous. They reverberate throughout church life. When discipling becomes normal, evangelism becomes easier. Why? Because it's essentially just discipling or pre-discipling, you could say. And so as we disciple one another in the church, we are honing our ability to have difficult spiritual conversations. That's a critical tool for evangelism. And when more members are regularly evangelizing and discipling, they're growing and understanding and applying the word of God, that is a great environment from which elders can be raised up. More elders result in a greater capacity for church planting and for missions, which is essentially just church planting across ethnic, linguistic, or geographic lines. And so this all goes back to my opening question today. Is there a key to church growth and or health beyond being true to the Bible and preaching the gospel? Is there some solid ground floor to lay on those foundations? I believe it's this mindset, this discipling germ, if you will. It's not really something in addition to the foundations of the gospel and the Bible, but rather it's the appropriate response after having stared deeply at those foundations. It's the picture painted for us in Titus 2, 2 to 10. It is a whole church culture powered by sound gospel doctrine rather than a program. A cornucopia of programs and pathways have been put forward about how to grow disciples, to mature the church. A lot of them are 95% great, including some I mentioned earlier, like putting a focus on children's programming, like a specific kind of Bible study. But here is where a lot of Christians go astray. We become married to one of those methodologies. We are guided more by our clever mission statements than by being staggered by the grace we have been shown through the unchanging gospel. And this eventually, some quicker than others, pulls our priorities out of line. All these extra focuses, these ideas, these programs, these ministry focuses, they fade, they rise to the new generation. But here is what is sustainable, what is fruitful, what is timeless. Tightening our grasp on the sound gospel doctrine of Titus 2, 11 to 14, and using that perspective to drive our whole outlook on our Christian lives and in turn our corporate life as a church. And brothers and sisters, make no mistake, Paul is emphasizing the corporate dimension of our salvation in this passage. Look at verse 12 again. The grace of the gospel teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Brother, sister, it is not just about you and Christ, me and Jesus. If you have been redeemed by him, you have been brought into a people. This has been God's intention from eternity past, a people for his very own. That text Armando read for us earlier, Exodus 19.5, is likely where Paul draws some of his language here in Titus 2.14. God, speaking to the Israelites in the desert, said, Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be 
my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Of course, Old Testament Israel never kept the part of their covenant. Ezekiel 37, though, foresees a day when a better covenant to govern God's people would come. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions, but I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned and will cleanse them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. Brothers and sisters, as we live godly lives in response to the grace of the gospel, we are compelled to help one another in this present age, but we also look forward. There is a future tense of our salvation. We will be saved. We can say that sentence. We wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 10 puts forward a similar tension Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. New City, as we participate in the Lord's purifying work in one another, as the Spirit sanctifies us by means like discipling, we do so in the certain hope secured by the grace of the gospel that the Lord will bring his work in us to completion. The Apostle John records a glimpse of this in Revelation 21. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed passed away. At the second coming of Christ, the purification of Christ's church will be complete. She will be his spotless bride. Our local churches now may not be perfect. They will not be perfect, but they allow us to see a shadow of what is to come in the finished purification of the universal church. On that day, only good works shall emerge from her members. For now, we strive, God's grace assisting us to be more and more eager to do what is good, eager to do all that is appropriate to sound doctrine, as we hold to it by faith and long for a day when our faith will be realized in sight, a day on which, as the great hymn writer wrote, we shall be saved to sin no more. Amen.